0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening to Next Level Skiing, where we pursue just about any tips, hacks, and strategies we can find that can help us take our skiing up a notch. Today we have Jonathan Ellsworth. He's the founder and CEO of Crested Buttes Blister. For the last nine years, Jonathan has studied and tested outdoor gear, delivering honest, in-depth reviews that have garnered a loyal global audience. If you guys haven't been over to blisterreview.com, check it out. It's an amazing website and really a must-stop for anyone who's pondering a gear purchase. Jonathan is a former philosophy professor, and he's got those deep-thinking perspectives that not only help countless users find the best gear, but they enable us to up our game when we're playing outside. Plus, he's a former personal trainer with some really strong insight into how we can stay ready to roll and jump into the woods at a moment's notice. So listen up as Jonathan tells us what to look for when we are shopping for toys and how to stay poised for play on this episode of Next Level Skiing. Hey everybody, welcome to Next Level Skiing. This is Jason and today we have the founder and editor of Blister. Philosophy professor to a personal trainer to the gear guru that he is today.
1: Welcome, Jonathan. Jason, it's really good to be talking with you. Yeah, happy to happy to be doing this conversation with you.
0: Oh, this is gonna be fun. I could talk about gear for hours and upon hours. Um, <laughs> so let's kick it off here with uh, just uh, tell us a little bit about how you grew up on skis and how you found your way to the incredible independent gear review site of Blister.
1: Hmm. Well, I think a really important part of the story is actually that I did not grow up on skis, and uh, so yeah, my story is I grew up in the Chicago area, very far from any mountains, and um, I was uh, my kind of first and second loves were really football and basketball, and that was really life for me. So you know, was a high school football and basketball player, went to college for football, and uh, frankly, unlike. The vast majority of our reviewers at Blister, who so many of them started skiing when they were literally three or four years old, I had the latest start of anybody of us here at Blister. But I'll kind of explain why I actually think that's a pretty critical part of the story. Sure. So yeah, I was a uh, you know kind of a football basketball jock. Ended up having a serious uh, neck injury that ended a college football career. And uh at that point really found myself without an identity. You know, the the stuff that I was about and that I loved to do, that had just been taken from me. And uh I guess thankfully I a light bulb kind of turned on and I really started doubling down and, and taking my studies seriously. And I was a philosophy and literature double major and did some work in kinesiology kind of as a minor because I've always had a long-standing interest in physical fitness in large part, just so that I could be training as smartly as I could for football and basketball. Did my undergrad stuff, uh, immediately went from my, uh, my college work into graduate school and did five years of graduate work in philosophy at the university of Chicago. And, uh, Started teaching philosophy. I was asked to teach at a liberal arts school when I was 26 years old, and was kind of fast tracked into a tenure track position. And then I kind of made, I guess, uh, the best thing uh, that ever happened to me, or you know, arguably the worst thing from the point of view of academic philosophy. I ended up heading out to New Mexico for a summer just to work on a dissertation, and that was really my first time of really living in and playing in the mountains. And I just kind of fell in love with it. And that as a uh, 28 year old, I was discovering mountain biking and climbing and trail running. And then I just said, this is too good. I informed the school I was teaching at that I was not going to be coming back the following year. And um, I took a year off. And that was really my first ski season, like long ski season. And I just absolutely fell in love with it and um, never went back to Chicago. So had been living out in New Mexico for 17 years and um, really started skiing at Taos. And um, it just became an absolute passion of mine. You know, from there, I was kind of a good athlete um, who was new to the sport. But really understood that being on the right pair of skis or in the right boot, that that would probably really make a big difference for my own progression in skiing and how much I was enjoying stuff. And the thing that was a big shock to me was just how bad the level of information was about all of this really expensive product. And I would, you know, kind of flip through these glossy buyer's guides and it was just so stupid, you know, the kind of like old same cliches being trotted out all the time. You know, this ski carves like it's on train tracks and floats like a dream. And it's like, okay, seriously, like this is like targeted at second grade level. And the more then I learned about the fact that so much of the review world operates on a kind of pay-to-play system. That honestly at the time was just scandalizing to me because I thought these are the publications that are kind of at the center of these communities that we love so much, right? Whether it's skiing or mountain biking, you know, or running or trail running. And I just honestly was, I was like, this is really messed up that the main media, the main kind of papers of record in these sports would just turn around and lie to these communities to make some money from the gear manufacturers and so when i really figured out and learned how these review the review world worked that was when i really started getting serious about like you know what we're going to do this a different way and we're going to do this a much better way one of the primary big differences about how we operate at blister is we do not accept any money from any of the gear manufacturers we review None. Never have. And we're about to turn nine years old.
0: I have a theory that the reason ski technology sat dormant for 35 years, you know, pretty much like we did not see very many changes in ski design from the first metal edge to 1995, right? Was because reviews, nobody really took it seriously to write anything or take a hard look at the performance of these skis. We just took what the ski maker was making and they were not being very inventive. You know, they were maybe putting a splash of color on their thing, but there just wasn't any new technology and they just sat there for that long. Granted snowboarders helped us out with, you know, the the whole idea of, you know, hourglass shape and some rocker and things like that. But I, I feel like a lot of the design came after people started really looking at these things and we had the internet and we started saying, Hey man, these skis are, you know, these old fat, vocals or, you know, this is fun. And we started seeing pictures of Shane McConkey riding water skis and stuff like that. All of a sudden we're on on like a new track. That's that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. There was never, again, if, and this is something that I I do actually think the philosophy background helped me get clear on, right. Was like, man, if we're running a business and um, this is, and by the way, this is not just confined to the little world of like outdoor sports, we're seeing this problem everywhere globally when it comes to journalism, right? What kind of revenue streams do we have? And do the revenue streams we have undermine the credibility of the work we're doing? These are big global issues that are important on so many different levels. Institutional trust, right? That's not just a problem in the world of outdoor sports reviews. That's a problem at the biggest levels of government at the biggest levels of news coverage and journalism. It's just, it's also true in our world, which is actually not that small of a world anymore, right? If we're talking about a $1 to $2 trillion a year global outdoor sports industry, you know, anyway, I think that for us, I was very much concerned from the get-go in thinking about how do we put a review publication together where our revenue streams don't, Undermine the integrity and the credibility of our work. We are here to do smart consumer product information, not just appease gear manufacturers by clamoring for their advertising dollars. So that's a long-winded way to agree with you, Jason, to say that I do think there's that's a part of the reason for sure why we had a kind of stagnant situation. It's like the gear manufacturers just showed up with their ad buys and said, "Please write nice things about us." And that's kind of the world we lived in for a long time. And that's not the world we operate in here at Blister. Have you ever read a bad ski review, you know, in like one of the glossy mags? Nope. 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 So Uh, anyway, that's what we kind of committed to. And we write really long form reviews. We pride ourselves on the accuracy of our reviews and uh, they are in depth. When we criticize a product, we don't just make some snarky joke that it sucks we go in and really go into like, this is why we think this thing needs to be different or how it could be improved. And, um, you know, uh, it it really wasn't something that we were seeing much in the landscape. Um, when, when I started blister nine years ago. And how many, uh, gear review texts do you have on that you deploy now? Yeah, we have, there's on this, let's just, we'll keep this now. Um, just talking about the ski side, I guess. I mean, overall, in all the different categories that we review, ski, snowboard, mountain biking, climbing, running, trail running, we probably have about 50 to 60 freelance reviewers that we employ. But on the ski side, there really is kind of six or seven of us that are doing probably the the heavy lifting. This is another thing, right? Like, we could go out and hire two hundred people, but that then really starts to make it difficult if we want to try to have if if we want to be able to have sort of our key people weighing in on a whole bunch of different skis so that we can make really accurate comparisons yeah, so exactly. that's a bit of a that's that tension right like you know and so if um if there's say six or seven of us doing most of this work getting on most of the skis that we're going to review in a given year it's tricky for to have us just expand this field out to 50 or 60 because that's an easy way to get some people like get a number of days on a few pairs of skis but then they might be lacking in some of the you know a lot of the comparisons so that's a bit of a tension that we deal with and that evolves you know these things evolve but yeah
0: you guys are quick too. I mean, like today you have the new marker dupe review up. So you've had that in your quiver for some time, be able to look at that. And that just came out today, didn't it, or a couple of days ago?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, so in that case, and um increasingly it's the case that companies will want to get our feedback on product before they even release a product, and, and increasingly they kind of would like to get our feedback before they take a ski to production. And That's actually when we can, and if we have time, that's something we're happy to do. Ultimately, our primary goal is for there to be better products going out there on the market, and make sure that we're lining uh, skiers and mountain bikers up with the product that is going to be the best fit for them, right? Right. But in the case of this this Marker Duke, this was just an initial thing. Marker unveiled this new AT binding today. And, um, we were just doing some, um, you our gear 30 podcast, we were doing a bit of speculating given the specs and like where we think this binding would locate maybe some of its pros and cons against some of what we would identify to be its most direct competitors. So in this case, we haven't skied yet the marker Duke, but we were just, uh, going ahead and giving kind of our take on, uh, where we think this, uh, this item kind of sits among the field. Nice and
0: you know talking about the best product for the best person that sort of is a, yeah. a good way to get into some uh, yeah. gear talk for next level skiing um, you know the reason we're chatting today is I want to help folks find ways for them to improve their skiing and you know, like you were saying earlier one of the reasons you one of the benefits you have of kind of coming late into skiing is that you recognized the value of a of a good ski and a and a good boot and all all the different accessories and things that you need so you know and that's that's where you guys can really provide a lot of insight for all of us i go to blister all the time what is you know in, in your overarching kind of 9 years of watching gear technology ski technology develop what what are some of the trends that you've seen that have enabled skiers and what do you see you know when you when you actually talk to skiers when a skier gives you feedback on your review yeah. and says this you know this really helped me or i don't like the too wide movement everybody's got to have the widest skis around these days don't they but it sure is nice to uh maybe provide the insight for folks who who maybe don't want a wide ski maybe want a skinnier ski maybe want a softer ski and they know how to look and where to look and they're not necessarily going in totally blind when they pick up a pair of skis so what have you seen yeah. out there in the world that's helped helped us improve our turns
1: yeah well i think one of the big things is i do i mean total total credit to snowboarding i totally agree with oh, your yeah. point that you mentioned early on i mean ski skiing and ski design just stole just straight up stole so many good ideas that were already there first in in snowboarding and so i do think that i do think that tip and tail rocker right like where we're seeing these this rise uh, at the tip and tail off the snow this has really opened up the sport in a super significant way. And so I would say more than material advances that we've seen over, say, the last decade, I think the refining and dialing in of the shape of skis has just gone a tremendous way in terms of really opening up the sport for a lot of people. So I think that that's been a really positive, broader development across kind of ski technology. I then think there's a thing that I say a lot uh, on Blister, and um, you know I have old Socrates to thank for this. But uh, a mantra that we say all the time to people is "Know thyself," and I think that it is really easy for, uh, and I and I understand this temptation very much myself it's very easy for us to kind of fall in love with some new product that comes onto the market and it looks really flashy and it looks great. And maybe we gave it a super good review on Blister, right? The important thing to think about is how are you, the person listening to this, how are you going to actually be using certain products? How do you like to ski? You know, and We may be praising some ski on blister for its absolute, you know, supreme stability at speed. And we might love that. You need to ask yourself, do I actually care about super high speed stability? And if you're someone who's like, listen, I really enjoy making a lot of shorter turns at very moderate controlled speeds down the mountain, then you need to keep that in mind Before falling in love with some ski that maybe we love at Blister or say that it's particularly great at that. Listen, if that's not how you enjoy spending your time on the mountain, that's a terrible fit for you. And so I do think you're not going to like that ski. (laughs) No. Now, here's another example we find that a lot of people out there are kind of drinking the industry Kool Aid about like, we just keep hearing this in the ski world. Look at this. We've just redesigned this ski and it's, you know, 25% lighter than it used to be. Or here's this new Alpine ski boot. It's the lightest ski boot on the market. And I spend so much time trying to convince people that lightweight skis and lightweight Alpine ski boots can suck. And it can be pretty appealing to like, walk into a ski shop, grab something off the wall, hold it in your hand and be like, wow, this is super light. That's awesome. It's like, again, know thyself. For people who are doing long ski tours, lightweight equipment is better than it's ever been and can make for a much better, more enjoyable time in the mountains. But if you are someone who is only skiing inbounds and riding chairlifts, Please understand that a bit of weight in your ski boot and a bit of weight in your skis can go a long way to providing much better suspension or much, much better damping when you're dealing with moguls and variable terrain and messed up kind of janky snow. And so this is a big thing, I think, is people need to be very, very careful before they are certain that that brand new super lightweight ski boot or lightweight ski is going to do any amount of good for them
0: that is a very good point i think you know you see someone on two light skis just getting thrown around and you know when they hit variable terrain and the next thing you know they're three four runs in and they're cooked they're just done like so you know it may seem counterintuitive to be like you actually want a little piece of metal in there and you know just try these skis with the you know, a little bit of a weight on them and believe it or not, they will save your legs. They will make yeah. you have a better day.
1: That's right. And, and we, and, and just in case we want to flesh this out for people, because truly I think a lot of people out there, I mean, I love skiing. It's one of my favorite things in the world. The only thing I truly care about is that people are out there having as much fun skiing as I am. <laughs> and so when we think about this in terms of say mountain biking, Right. If someone were to go ride a mountain bike down a really rocky trail and they didn't have a front fork, a front suspension fork and a rear suspension shock on that bike, it's very easy for people to imagine like, oh my God, that's going to be brutal. I would get really beat up riding a rigid bike without suspension on it down rocky terrain. But when we then translate over into skiing, We don't put forks and shocks on the skis. The suspension of the ski comes from the weight of the ski itself. So when you take out all of the weight of that ski or that ski boot, you're effectively, it's kind of like you're riding a mountain bike, a rigid mountain bike down really rocky terrain. Think about how jarring and awful that feels. So that's the, I'll I'll shut up on this topic, I swear but I really think that this is one of the biggest things that people would be they would do themselves a big favor if they didn't get seduced by the by the marketing copy that the the ski manufacturers and boot manufacturers are often wanting to put out there that we took all the weight out of the ski and none of and there's no loss in performance or no loss in damping or suspension it's just not true it's physics it's simple physics sure
0: Plus, you go faster Uh, when you got a little weight on your ski, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's plush. It's a more plush ride. You know, it's not a jarring ride. And I don't know. But for for when I ski, I like that. I like a ski and a ski boot that offers a nice plush suspension. And the lighter you go on that ski or that boot, I guarantee you're going to be moving away from that nice suspension, that nice plush feel, and things are going to feel more jarring. And uh, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't love that feeling.
0: No, and that's yeah, and you're able to ski all day when you have, you know, a big, sort of absorbent type type ski. Hey everyone, this is Jason with Next Level Skiing. Hey, so many skis out there, and really none of them suck. You just can't make bad skis and stay in business these days. But it could take years to find that perfect ride. Hours flipping through the blister gear reviews all those demos, repeat visits to the rental shop, wasted days or even arduous season on disagreeable skis. Let's well, repeat Wagner and his custom-made Wagner skis can help. Wagner and his team have developed a thorough process for finding your perfect ski. They call it skier DNA fitting. Even if you aren't sure what it is you like and dislike, an expert ski designer with Wagner can help you articulate your perfect ski. the right link width, side cut radius, tip and tail shape, camber, rocker, material, stiffness, flex pattern and of course graphics. Fully guaranteed, sculpted just for you and precision crafted in Telluride, Colorado. I got my first pair of Wagner skis a year ago and I'm here to tell you believe the hype around a custom ride. Just the right stiffness in a not too rounded tail, just enough softness in that ready to float tip, perfect length and a touch of side cut that bites hard when angled through the mank it is my perfect ski takes about three weeks from that first interview to the happiest happiest of days when the wagner box lands on your porch seriously is there any better day than new ski day so click over to wagnerskiscom slash next level and find your next level with a pair of just for you wagner skis yeah that's a great comparison talking about a mountain bike you definitely not ride on a rigid tail you know rigid fork mountain bike on you know hard rocky single track, but we we don't tend to transfer that over to skis, do we? It's a great point. How about um boot technology or anything? That's one thing that seems to be pretty uh you know, have you noticed any any changes again with the lightweight, but you know, would you stick with that sort of same argument with ski boots when you're looking for a ski boot? You know, last year, for example, we interviewed a, a my favorite boot tech, Jim Lindsay, and you know, if my Life has never been the same since I've, you know, had custom liners and my boots adjusted to me. Is there anything that's happened in ski boot technology that you've seen enables folks to maybe improve quicker or last longer or perform better?
1: Yeah, I think I think a couple of things. I mean, one, there are still like hundreds of thousands of skiers out there skiing in ski boots that are not the right size. And that makes a big difference if we're talking about say an intermediate skier who maybe is you know like they've got a family and they've got a real job in the city and so no they're not skiing a hundred days a year because they're doing important things with their lives raising families etc you know if you've got five to ten days a year of to ski, which is the vast majority of skiers out there, I exactly. do think that if you're somebody who is, not merely about having a comfortable time out on the mountain, which is a fine thing to do, right? It's like, I wanna take three runs and then go to the bar and sit in the sunshine and enjoy a drink. Awesome, that's great. I hope you have a great time out there. Let's now talk though about the intermediate skier who would, is interested in like, you know I don't get to ski as much as maybe I'd want, but I do like the idea of trying to progress. I do think here, I mean, first of all, Do not buy your ski boots online and have them show up in a box. This is where it really makes a big difference to go to an experienced boot fitter and you don't go in with some stupid boot that maybe won boot of the year in some magazine that maybe probably barely tested the boot or it was part of an advertisement buy. Don't do that. You go into the boot fitter And try to have an honest conversation about your own ability level, about what you'd like to kind of do on the mountain or how you'd like to progress. And, um, you know, then go have a good conversation with them and listen to the boot fitter, right? I think that is just critical. And a lot of people will often end up in a boot that is too big as opposed to a boot that is too small. In terms of now to answer exactly. your question about a big a big development in technology is we're really seeing interesting things happen, happening in terms of uh, heat moldable shells. And I think that that is something like I'm, I'm lucky. I tend to have a foot that works really well with most ski boot manufacturers like size 26.5 in their low volume last. So I I mean, I test ski boots for a living. And I can get along pretty well um, in a 26.5 low-volume boot. Um, For people who have trickier feet, I think that that's where getting into heat-moldable shells, not just heat-moldable liners, but the shells themselves can really be something where we can get a performance-fitting ski boot that also can be molded to really fit a foot much better. And so these are becoming more uh, predominant in the ski boot world. And, uh, I do think that this is an interesting development.
0: That is, Yeah. yeah, That's really interesting. I like that a lot. That's probably one of the more beneficial things you can do to improve your skiing is go to a boot fitter. (laughs) I mean, it's like, maybe it's intimidating, but you will have a much more pleasant five to 10 days of skiing if you can get your foot, you know, just comfortable and performance. And those two things are no longer contrary. You can actually yeah. get both of them. Yeah. So here's a good spot to maybe transition. You know, I love the fact that you probably spend a lot of time on these blasted machines, staring at screens. And then <laughs> at the same time, you have to get up at a moment. So and roll off the office chair there and go pound out a great mission and try different skis. And Hang with yeah. you know all your testers and your probably younger stronger fitter lifestyle type skiers <laughs> this is, i think this is something my own curiosity but you have a background as a physical trainer and personal trainer so you know are, are, do you have a i don't know an exercise regimen do you do you have a special stretch <laughs> anything that you can tell yeah. us that could maybe help us uh i don't know just maybe think about it a little more and um Maybe not be so unprepared when your buddy calls you at 10 p.m. the night before and says, we're going to go, you know, knock off a big one or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think this is really important. And I think um, here's the part where, you know, I, I think that for listeners, you know, while, while I do, I, I do get usually 100 plus days a year uh, on the mountain. I'm also working 80 to 100 hours a week. And so this is a very, like this conversation is very close to my heart, right? Like I'm not a professional athlete that just gets five hours a day for workout time. And so I have to be very intentional with what my workouts look like and trying to do things, uh, get those in like a lot of bang for the buck, right? Like what's really going to pay dividends in a short amount of time. So first thing, yeah, you're right, Jason. I do spend a lot of time at a computer every day. And I think that there's something, you know, number one, for people who are probably listening to this in a similar boat, stretch your hamstrings, stretch your hamstrings, tight hamstrings lead to all kinds of back issues that can be really debilitating. And when I was working as a personal trainer for over a decade, this is just something that I would talk about every single session with my clients um, and and this is real basic stuff. You know, if if you've been, you know, you're crushed with work, you're you've been st- working at the computer nonstop for four, five, six hours, to get up and do some very basic, simple hamstring stretches, where you aren't, you are not immediately like jamming down and driving and grabbing your toes. It's like ease into this stuff these stretches can be very simple. And it's kind of like just gently wading into the pool, right? This is another thing. If you've been sitting and stagnant for a long time, you do not want to aggressively, you know, stand up and just bend over kind of violently trying to grab your toes. That's just putting a stress on these muscle fibers where you're probably just going to end up straining or tearing them rather than, Uh, actually leading to a beneficial stretch. So people, and and the other thing is a trainer that I saw all the time, about 80% of my clients would come in with back pain. And in the vast majority of the cases, just by getting them into a regular uh, hamstring stretching routine, where we're talking about doing a stretch for maybe 20 to 30 seconds, two to three times Often we could get them to have that back pain just go away. So that's a significant one for me. The other thing I'm a huge fan of for most people, let's see if we're talking about people who are, say, five foot six to six feet tall, a 55 centimeter strength ball or physio ball can be a really beneficial thing to have in terms of stretching both the back and doing a really uh, effective abdominal exercise. So again, I think I think both of those things are incredibly important for skiing. I, I might argue back health is one of the most important things, especially if you're out there pounding moguls. And so, stretching hamstrings and um, smart work on a physio ball can be brief things from a time point of view that can make up end up having a big impact. And, and Jason, I'll pause on that. I don't know how much you want me to try to just like. This is where a video would be more effective, I think, but I don't know if you want me to try to go into detail about how to, like explaining Um, what I'm talking about on the physio ball. No,
0: but yeah, let's do it. I mean, I think, you know, anything, especially just getting off the couch, I kind of, I kind of like that idea in terms of where we spent so much time in a chair and looking at these machines or even standing up and looking at these machines. You know, I think there's a lot of us out there that could really use just about any advice and any Technique, you know, and then we're, I'm not afraid to get in nuts and bolts. We got time. Let's go.
1: Okay. So,
0: yeah, what are you talking about on a physio ball? Like, what, what exactly are you wanting us to kind of do?
1: <laughs> yeah. So this can be, you know, this is where uh, a video could be a bit more useful, perhaps. But I'll do my best here. Um, again, this is pretty simple. If you, what we really want is if you just sit down in the center you know, sit down on the center of that ball and then just very slowly kind of walk your feet out forward so that you are now lying down on that ball with the ball now kind of centered on your back. This should be a stable position, but you're effectively lying on the ball, knees bent, your feet uh, flat on the floor. And then what I want you to do is put your hands behind your head, fingers crossed, hands behind your head, elbows straight out to the side. So you are just supporting your head in your hands. And then honestly, again, for people that have been sitting forward in what I like to call like the American work position, we're like right hunched over in these terrible postural positions at our laptops. The purpose now is when you're lying on that ball, just now start stretching back. And again, if you feel like you are unstable or something, get your hips a bit more forward. The further forward you are, you know, you'll you be more stable on that ball. And really the most important thing here is just let yourself relax into this stretch where your head is starting to move closer and closer to the floor. And so you're, we're putting the back in a position of what we call extension. Right. So in that gross American work position where we're hunched over at a computer, that's what we're trying to basically undo here. And so we're forward inflection in this hunched over position at the computer. Now being on the strength ball, we're just stretching and relaxing and letting the back move into extension. Right. And again, this is also something that I do every time. If I'm testing mogul performance of a ski, and we're out there pounding fast, hard mogul laps, when I come back in from that, I'm going to take just two minutes, get on the physio ball, the strength ball, and again, 55 centimeters. Most people get balls that are way too big. But um, so on this 55 centimeter ball, I get on that ball, and I'm going to start moving and opening up the back getting this stretch and moving into this position of extension. So we could flesh that out further, but I hope that for now gives people a bit of a picture of what I'm talking about, or unless Jason, you have a follow-up question to that.
0: No, that's, that's exactly what now. One thing I like to always wonder about is stretch before or after skiing. What's your take on that one?
1: Yeah. I don't tend to do, too much stretching before skiing. What I always do is actually like, now a lot of my friends end up messing this up because I'll get out to the mountain and then it's like, cool, we're going to hike over, you know, into the, like, we're going to go hike the peak, you know, or we're going to go right away and go get into some like bigger terrain. And then it's like, okay, well, but what I like to do is first or two first and or second run of the day, super chill groomer. And I usually just use that as my kind of warm up. And, um, for me personally, that usually tends to be an effective way to get going. And I kind of just get a feel of how I'm doing, get the muscles warm. And, um, you know, I'm just making kind of bigger turns. And, uh, at that point, I kind of let my body dictate, you know, how I'm feeling and how I'm doing. And if something feels really tight or strange after that first run or two, I might stop and do an adductor stretch, you know, or I might, you know, do a hamstring stretch after that, but that's usually my routine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like if I'm, if I'm skinning, I like to stop somewhere and after warming up on a, you know, say the first 30 minutes of skinning and stretch my, uh, like the front, my hip flexors Those always get really sore when you're skinning. I feel like.
1: Yep. Yep. When you're skinning. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool. But That's normally what I do.
0: Yeah, that's very good advice. Instead of jumping right into the uh, the big giant bumps run one, give yourself a little uh, time just to suss things out, make sure you're all standing on top, right? So one thing we're asking everybody um, at Next Level Skiing is asking about a single piece of advice. Jonathan, Is there ever, ever ever been any piece of advice that you've received skiing that still resonates? Something that you, I don't know. You kind of find yourself repeating to yourself over and over while you're, you know, every ski day, it could be something simple. It could be something in mental sort of preparation, but you know, any, uh, any tips or any pieces of advice that, uh, you still find yourself holding on to?
1: One of my favorites, um, you know, I'm here in Crested Butte and, uh, we got a whole lot of steep techie terrain in Crested Butte and, and I love it, you know, but, uh, it is a mountain where if you want to, you can kind of go scare yourself every day. And um, those tend to be some of my places, favorite places to ski. And, and uh, so um, one of the things that I think is just so cool about skiing in general, and it's so, there's such uh, significant, I think, resonances with like life in general, is the more scared you are of the terrain in front of you, and I love this because it's all relative, right? So a much right, better skier than I right, might be standing, we might be standing on the same line and, you know, he or she is, you know, cool as a cucumber and I might be sweating it a little bit. And conversely, I might be standing on a line where it's totally comfortable for me, but somebody who doesn't get to ski as much might be like feeling a bit out of their comfort zone. I just think the sure. thing that the 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 steeper that terrain gets or the more uncomfortable you are, it really is the case that the more forward you should think about and kind of force yourself to be on your skis. And it's totally counterintuitive, right? That steep mogul section, it's like, ooh, that looks scary, but here I go. I think our instinct is to get into the backseat, right? It's Our instinct is to kind of like we'll be moving forward, but I'm going to kind of get, I'm going to shy away. Yeah, exactly. And it's absolutely the wrong tack to take. I also think it's the wrong tack to take in life, right? There's something about like, if you are going to actually move forward with a given challenge, you go all in and you face it yeah, lean into forward, it. right? And you get, you lean into it. And I think that's it's every single day that I'm out, you know, into some of the diceier areas in Crested Butte. I do think about that every single time, and and uh, you know, any business owner, anybody starting some new advent, uh endeavor, you can probably uh, that probably resonates as well. It's like, okay, we're going to take this on. We better lean into it. And uh, great advice for life and for skiing. I think.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. And on that point, I think that is a good spot to wrap this up. Jonathan, thank you so much. And everybody, make sure to click over to Blister. This is probably blisterreview.com. Really is a vital, critical tool for anyone who um, needs anything remotely necessary for playing in the backcountry. You guys have the – are sort of the authority in terms of – independent reviews of that kind of stuff and it's uh that's a role that this industry needs more and more as we know well jonathan
1: thank you well thank you jason been a pleasure